This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. The genome. And what you're going to see is that there have been a lot of things happening in the last couple years. And so as these headlines kind of fly past you, I want you to just kind of pay attention to how does it make you feel when you read these words? And when you think about us changing our genome or our DNA in ways that might allow us to do exciting things like cure diseases, prevent diseases that get inherited from being translated to the next generation, but also to think about what, when, what about when we investigate things like characteristics that have to do with intelligence or athleticism or looks? If we can manipulate those, what might that mean? And what could be positive and negative consequences to this? So I'm just going to kind of ask you to, as you think about these things and hear about what we talk about today, to kind of flag some of the feelings that you have and keep those in your back pocket so that when we talk about those afterward, uh, that we might be able to get that, that from you and, and talk about it a little more. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to hand it off to Dale, and he's going to give you some historical context about genome editing and eugenics. Great to be with you. Thank you so much, parents, for making it possible for your sons and daughters to be here. I wouldn't be employed if it weren't for you. Um, thank you to alums. Uh, it's amazing to see some of you. Some I had as many as 30 years ago. Uh, and that is just really one of the great things about Whitworth. And even today, it's great because one of the things that's a little bit different about Whitworth, I think, than a lot of other schools is that you get to interact with people outside of your field. And as you've already seen, uh, Dr. Putsky, Aaron Putsky, is one of our really bright and upcoming scientists. And so for me, an old historian, to get to work with him, and I, I won't speak to uh, how long Kathy has been here, uh, but in any event, uh, it's been, it's, it, it's, it's fantastic. Well, as uh, Aaron said, my, my job is to be brief here. That's the, that's the main thing they've told me, be brief. Um, but it is to give a little bit of context about an earlier effort to improve the species, and that is the eugenics movement that maybe some of you know about, maybe some of you have heard about, but I still, even today, find a lot of people aren't that familiar with, with uh, eugenics. But eugenics is defined as a set of beliefs and practices aimed at improving the genetic quality of the human population. As we'll see, the implementation, however, of genetics 100 years ago resulted in the restriction of certain ethnic groups from entering the United States, resulted in the forced sterilization of tens of thousands of individuals who were deemed, quote, unfit, and the attempt to keep different races from procreating together. The actual idea of eugenics was rooted in the 1880s with the work of Sir Francis Galton, the half-cousin of Charles Darwin. He was a noted intellectual of his own day, but Galton concluded that through selective breeding, the human species could direct its own evolution. Galton said, quote, it's easy to obtain by careful selection a permanent breed of dogs or horses gifted with peculiar powers of running or doing anything else, so it would be quite practical to produce a highly gifted race of men by judicious marriages during several consecutive generations, end quote. Galton put a particular emphasis on what he called positive eugenics, aimed at encouraging the physically and mentally superior members of the population to choose uh, partners with similar traits. Of course, the key concept that sticks out in this early definition is physically and mentally superior. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it's clear that genetic superiority meant Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon peoples. Some of the earliest efforts in America to shape a better version of the human species was led by something called the American Breeders Association, which was founded in 1906. Shortly after that, uh, Charles da Davenport led the creation of the Eugenics Record Office in New York. Over the next 30 years, field workers collected many different forms of data, including family pedigrees depicting the inheritance of physical, mental, and moral traits. 
Officials at the record office were particularly interested in the inheritance of, quote, undesirable traits, such as pauperism, mental disability, dwarfism, promiscuity, and criminality. The office concluded that those who were unfit came from mostly economically and socially poor backgrounds. In retrospect, it's, what's really interesting is the degree to which eugenics became widely accepted in the American academic community. By 1928, it was estimated that there were 376 separate university courses across the country related to eugenics, enrolling more than an estimated 20,000 students. In addition to many academics, other well-known individuals endorsed the movement, perhaps the most Famous was Margaret Sanger, the leader of the American birth control movement. Margaret Sanger saw birth control as a means to prevent unwanted children from being born into disadvantaged life and incorporated the language of eugenics to advance the movement. Sanger also sought to discourage the reproduction of persons who it was believed would pass on mental disease uh, or serious physical de defects. She advocated sterilization in cases where the subject was unable to control or to, unable to use birth control. Among other famous public figures supporting eugenics was Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone. In 1883, Bell delivered an address to the National Academy of Sciences entitled Memoir Upon the Formation of a Deaf Variety of the Human Race. In his presentation, he discussed the high rates of deaf-to-deaf -deaf marriages and how it increases the number of deaf children through passing on generational deafness. Bell argued that this phenomenon was, created, was creating a deaf race that shares a, a language and culture. He wrote, quote, those who believe as I do that the production of a defective race of human beings would be a great calamity to the world will examine carefully the causes that lead to the intermarriages of the deaf with the object of applying a remedy. Another fascinating element of the eugenics movement was, in the, was the way in which these ideas worked their way into popular culture. The most famous expression were the better baby contests uh, at the Indiana State Fair. These contests lasted for a dozen years. They peaked with uh, 1,300 infants uh, competing uh, against one another in 1930 for being the better baby. The intent of the contest was to educate the public about raising healthier children. However, its, however, its exclusionary practices reinforced social class and racial discrimination. Uh, in Indiana, for example, the contestants were limited to white infants African-American immigrant children were barred from the competition of ribbons and prize cash prizes. As mentioned before, two issues of public policy were directly influenced by the eugenics movement, forced sterilization and immigration restriction. The first state to enact a sterilization law, again, was Indiana in 1907, but followed quickly by the state of Washington in 1909, as well as uh, California in that year. By 1931, there were 28 states with forced sterilization laws, and these uh, eventually uh, resulted in the sterilization of an estimated 64,000 people in the United States, mostly out of mental institutions. With the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924, eugenicists for the first time played an important role in the congressional debate as expert advisors on the threat of inferior stock. The new act, inspired by the eugenic belief in racial superiority of the old stock, white Americans as members of the Nordic race, strengthened the position of existing laws prohibiting race mixing. And then finally, one of the most disturbing elements uh, was the fact that the eugenics program, ultimately in Nazi Germany, we know now, was primarily based on the eugenics practices in the United States. So as I turn this over to Kathy, uh, hopefully we just have a little bit better idea of how nearly 100 years ago, the goal of producing a better species resulted in a number of troubling practices uh, and policies. Do you need this? 
Dale has left us on a very sobering note, but I do want to step aside for just a moment and say welcome to you, how wonderful it is to have you here. Um, I'm actually, I've actually been here longer than anybody else. Dale was kind not to say that, but uh, I do uh, want to let you know what a thrill it is always to, to meet so many of you for the first time and often to see people whom I've known years before. So what a great privilege it is to have you here. At the heyday of the eugenics movement that Dale has just described, what we're going to do is focus in for a moment on the year 1924, the state of Virginia, and specifically we're going to focus in for a moment on the story of a young woman named Carrie Buck. Dale, just describe for you how widespread the eugenics movement had become, how it had taken hold of so much of the country. Um, conferences, museums, state fairs, publications, and even preaching contests were promoted to help sell and support the benefits of the eugenics movement. Um, the idea that captured people was perhaps if we can control the gene pool of the country, we can solve the social ills of the country. We can take care of vagrancy and um, crime and prostitution and drain on social resources and all the things that were troubling America and, and promising to, to continue to be a problem for America's future. So the hope was that controlling the genetic pool would change all of that and that the species, the American culture, American society would be better off. In 1924, Carrie Buck, Carrie Elizabeth Buck, was 17 years old. She was living with a foster family in Virginia. Her uh, own biological mother had been uh, had fallen on hard times when Carrie was a toddler, and so Carrie had been taken in by this family. Her foster parents were prominent, were well-connected members of the community. Her biological mother, again, was largely out of the picture for this portion of Carrie's life. However, despite the fact that the family had taken her in, Carrie was treated more as a housemaid than as a daughter. And at the end of the sixth grade, she was removed from school. At the age of 17, the family encountered what they understood was a significant problem, and that is that it was clear that Carrie was pregnant. Now, what the family also never publicly disclosed but knew was that uh, she was pregnant as a result of um, uh, a relationship or an encounter, I should say, actually a sexual assault by a nephew in the family. And so Carrie, again, was a victim of sexual assault. But the, the fact that she was pregnant created or had the potential to create great shame for the family, and the only solution they could see to hiding that shame was to institutionalize her. And so, in order to institutionalize her, they declared her as both feeble-minded and epileptic, though neither one was supported by evidence. In fact, she had been a moderate to good student in school during those early years. Um, but they went ahead and proceeded. They found people in the community from the legal establishment, from the medical establishment, from the schools, and so forth to support their claims. And so, again, despite all the evidence, Carrie was institutionalized. In Virginia at this time, like in many states, institutions had been developed as a humane alternative to either lack of care or to prisons. And so the original intent was quite good. But it became evident very quickly that actually institutions were not going to be a very efficient way of keeping people who were so-called feeble-minded uh, out of the society's gene pool. Um, and so um, the doctor who was in charge of the Virginia colony where Carrie was housed began to seek legal recourse, legal support for forced sterilization, believing that if only Carrie and others like her could be sterilized, then they could be released quickly from the institutions, sent back out into society, and there would be no fear of procreation. 
And so, uh, Dr. Albert Pretty worked with an attorney who developed a law um, in Virginia to try to allow uh, institutions like this to enforce sterilization procedures. The attorney also recommended that in order to make sure that this law would be legally binding, they should allow it to be tested in the courts as far as it should go, and that meant it eventually ended up at the Supreme Court of that time. By the way, um, here are some people you may recognize. This is uh, Taft, who had formerly been president, William Howard Taft, and this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, who are both members of that court. Now, Holmes, it's important to say, was actually a member of the Boston elite, and what isn't well known about him is that he was actually enthusiastic about the American eugenics movement. He then entertained, um, as the whole Supreme Court did, Carrie Buck's case, offered her no effective advocacy, and decided in favor of Dr. Pretty, who had brought the initial action. Uh, it's a very hard legal proceeding to read. I mean, it, it's a very hard um, decision to read, particularly in all of its details. It was actually uh, Holmes who wrote the final majority eight to one decision. And in that, he declared, among other things, very famously, that three generations of imbeciles are enough. And he was referring there to Carrie's own family, referring to her mother's own vagrancy, referring to Carrie herself, and referring to the birth, this young child who had by now been born, who had never been tested. But that was his pronouncement nonetheless and support for the majority decision. This Supreme Court decision, by the way, Buck v. Bell, um, now gave license to other states to develop eugenic sterilization programs. And though, I should say, though many of those state laws, all of those state laws, as far as I know, have now been rescinded or repealed, um, actually Buck v. Bell has never been overturned and it's still on the books. Just a final word about some of the social forces that gave rise to the eugenics movement and to the experiences of people like Carrie Buck. Uh, There's so many social forces that contributed. I want to name, just name a few. We'll probably come back to some of these same issues at the very end. But certainly part of what gave rise to the American eugenics movement was fear, fear of the other, you know, prejudice-driven fear of, um, uh, of the so-called feeble minded in particular. What's interesting and troubling is that the term feeble-minded was loosely defined, very broad, and as I mentioned, associated with all kinds of different social um, ills. Uh, second, enthusiastic for enthusiasm for labeling. Again, labeling the other, labeling using oftentimes assessment techniques that were tools being applied in areas for which they had not been designed, like intellectual assessment measures. Third, assumptions about human breeding, the way uh, that worked, the extent to which genes and breeding gave people control of the future of the human race. Next, a view of the human being that saw people as means to an end, in this case, a better so-called social future and not as an end in themselves. And then assumptions about the ideal human, what it means to be ideal or good as a human being. Ideas not founded in theology, not founded in, I think, many uh, careful social and ethical platforms or views, but instead a view that sort of took hold of the culture. So uh, that's the American eugenics movement in a nutshell, its impact on a particular young woman who became the test course for the Supreme Court case. Uh, as Dale mentioned, people generally don't know much about the American eugenics movement, but it still echoes today. It echoes in all kinds of issues, um, and it certainly raises for us the important questions about human beings, about intervention with uh, 
genes, with who gets to control those decisions and those values. Uh, and that brings us to Aaron Putsky, who's going to be talking to us about genome editing again. Thank you, Kathy. So hopefully you have a little context now <clears throat> of how humans can view each other and how throughout history we have made judgments on each other about what is an ideal human being, like Kathy was just getting at. And there are extreme cases where Nazis chose to exterminate people. Uh, in the US, we chose to involuntarily sterilize people in these efforts to decide what is ideal. And also what I'd like you to think about as we move into sort of a science aspect of it, ask yourself these questions, what does it mean to be broken as an individual? And a lot of times we talk about that in an emotional context. But I want you to think about that in this context. If we think about what is an ideal human being, and can we strive toward that, should we strive toward that, does that mean conformity among all? And as we get into scientific realms that might allow us to intentionally change people to become that, what does that mean? Who is ideal and how do we make those decisions? Should we make those decisions? So I'd like you to think about that as we kind of move into this area of genetics and genomes. Because what makes us different here in this room is in fact our DNA. That's what makes us look different and behave different from each other. But when we get into conversations that talk about is someone better than another person and is it based on their genetics, it's a really, really slippery slope and hopefully this context that you have is gonna help. I'm gonna hit pause here for a second and I apologize. If you're here for CORE, you can get extra credit. It's outside the door. Sign in before you leave the building. Unpause. This is what it's like with conversations with me at home. My kids ask me a question and I'm like, that's so exciting, let's talk about it for two hours. And they say, we just wanted a one minute answer, Dad. Let's talk a little bit about what is a genome. And I'm sure you've heard the word genome and DNA and cells and things like that. But let's just kind of go through a little bit of what they are so we're all on the same page. And don't worry, it's not gonna be super, super sciencey, and I'm certainly not gonna quiz you on it at the end, all right? So when we talk about, whoops, when we talk about what is a genome, your genome is all of the DNA that is in every single cell of your body. So every cell has DNA. And in fact, every cell has a full genome. So even though your cells behave differently, they all contain the same amount of DNA. The human genome has about three billion units, and there's only four types, A's, C's, T's, and G's. And so they're just big strings of those. And in fact, they're so big that it's about six feet long. If you could pull it out and, and unwind it, it would be about six feet. And think about this, your body has trillions of cells. If you haven't written that number down, try it. It's huge. Trillions of cells, which means if you could take all of the DNA in your body and string it together end to end, you could go to the sun and back hundreds of times. Anybody remember how far away the sun is? About 93 million miles. That's all inside of you. All of this DNA is in a teeny tiny ball that you can't even see, and every cell has it. And those, those uh, balls of DNA are in fact what control who you are. So what is your genome, what does it do? Well in fact, it's kind of like an information server, all right? It's really an instruction book. So all of your cells have the same instruction book but they just read different chapters of it. And that's a good thing. Because if you think about all the different things that your body does, it's really important that cells in your brain do different things than the cells in your legs and things like that. So we sequenced the genome uh, back around 1998-ish, 2000-ish. 
And we came out with this number, it's about 21,000 genes, sometimes it's 22, it changes. Because as we get better and better with technology, we figure out new things about the genome. So that number is never quite exact. So we have this code that gives instructions to your cells and says, make these proteins so that the neurons in your brain can fire properly, so that the, the muscle cells in your heart can pump the blood around. So your genome controls all of that, and that's really, really important. But it also controls what you look like, and it controls a lot about how you behave. Okay. So when it comes to who you are, it's really kind of interesting when we talk about genomes and different organisms. So in my lab, down in the lower right here, uh, we work on a little zebrafish, and we also work on these teeny tiny worms that you can't see really without a microscope. And in fact, the adults are about one millimeter long, so they're super small, a lot smaller than you. The genome of us, like I told you, is about three billion units. In these little worms that we work on, we've sequenced the genome. When I say we, by the way, it's the scientific community, not me. It's about 30 times smaller than ours, right? And you're like, well, it's a worm, it's small, it should have a smaller genome. Here's the thing. The worm genome was actually sequenced first, and then we sequenced the human genome, and we thought, oh, it's huge. They actually predicted originally that we'd have about 100,000 genes. Imagine the ego hit that we took as humans when we had the same number of genes as worms, right? It's like, well, that's not cool. And here's the thing. A lot of the genes between worms and humans are really similar. They cause our cells to do similar things. And that makes it really interesting to study them. And in fact, it makes things like worms and fish interesting, uh, what we call model organisms. Mice are very popular model organisms as well. Because a lot of similar things happen that we can do in those organisms that we've drawn a line and chose not to do in humans. So what can we do with the genome? And when we talk about editing with the genome, what does it have to do with things like cloning? So you might remember, this seems like so long ago already, right? <laughs> Jurassic Park, this was so exciting when it came out. I was just finishing college and cloning was just like this crazy kind of theory thing. And they talked about cloning, making dinosaurs because they isolated DNA from uh, the blood that was in a mosquito, do you remember that? And then they showed this cool little video in there that they made. We just watched it recently with my kids. Go back and rewatch it. The animation in that movie that seemed so cool at the time, you're like, oh, that's so primitive. <laughs> and they just decided to take dinosaur DNA and, and glue it together with amphibian DNA. And, and, and it worked, right? And that's cool, but just so you know that it doesn't work that way. So there's no worries about T-Rexes running around anytime soon. And then do you remember Dolly a couple years later? This was huge. We actually cloned an animal and it was really exciting. So, but what does this have to do with genome editing and is it the same? And, and the answer is no. It's not, it's not really genome editing like I'm about to tell you. But it was really exciting technology and this is how it worked, just briefly. They essentially took a, a skin cell from a sheep. And they took out, so that's on the top part, they essentially removed the nucleus, which has the genome, the DNA. And then they took an egg from a sheep, and they removed the DNA that was in the egg. And then they combined the DNA from the skin cell with the egg. And then they let it divide, and they implanted the embryo into a female sheep, into the uterus. The reason why this was such an interesting thing to pursue is they wanted to know, is the DNA in every cell of your body, the genome, is it equal? Can the genome in your skin cells make a whole new human being? Or is it different somehow? Well, the answer was, yeah, it made a sheep. It made a whole new organism. So it really confirmed that all of that DNA in there was capable of giving instructions to make a whole new organism. 
Now, how well did it work? So that, that fusion part with the, red, the genome and the egg, so they, they took about 277 tries. They did about 277 fusions. They got about 29 of these early embryos on the right there. 29 of those were implanted into uh, 13 surrogate mothers, and one worked. So think about the, the success factor there, starting with 277 attempts, and one worked. Now, if you do science regularly, you know that that's not such an unreasonable failure rate, because I know in my lab, most of what we do doesn't work, right? And I have really good students. But that's science. But what I want you to think about now is if we move into the realm of doing this on human DNA, what kind of risk are we willing to take? And if we have to do this using human embryos, how many are we willing to go through before it works? Okay, so let's talk about actual genome editing for a second here. It's called CRISPR, and here's why we call it CRISPR. Clustered, regularly, interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Unless you love saying that over and over again, feel free to say CRISPR. So what does it do? Essentially, it allows us, for the first time ever before we did this, we can edit DNA really specifically, in fact, at the single base level of three billion units, I can go and change one. And we hadn't really been able to do that before. And just for the record, we don't use Elmer's glue in the process, but <laughs> I thought it might be helpful, okay? We used to kind of take sledgehammers to the genome and, and break it apart and then see what happens. But now we can make really specific changes. And that's really, really exciting because we can intentionally change things to see how we can screw it up, like in worms and stuff. But now we think, hey, we know there are diseases out there that are due to one base change in the DNA. Can we change that back and undo the disease? And that sounds pretty exciting, right? Not a lot of people would disagree with wanting to do something like that. So here's what we do with the genome that's not disease stuff. We make cool organisms. So you've probably gone to a pet store and seen these glowfish. They're really exciting and interesting. Um, that's been done with genome editing at some level because we insert genes that when you hit them with ultraviolet light or black light, they, they essentially glow. It's pretty cool. Go read the backstory on that. That company that makes these, 20-year-old undergraduate business major in Texas who read about the technology and took a risk and licensed it from a group in Korea that actually came up with the technology. He's now ridiculously rich, just for you undergrads out there. <laughs> Entrepreneurial. But the new salmon that have been approved that have growth hormones that they express more of, that's a genome edit. Uh, we have mice that when we hit them with UV light, they fluoresce green, super cool, little creepy. By the way, an, another Korean lab who was like, oh, fish that glow. I wonder if people would like dogs that glow. So they made some beagles that, that glow red, and nobody bought them because it was really creepy looking. <laughs> so can we do CRISPR in humans? And, and the answer is yes. They've done a ton of stuff, uh, especially in these mouse models. They're mammals like us, and we can model diseases in them. And they've sort of cured different things so far, and they're trying to do more. And there are different types of muscular dystrophy that we've worked. So we're, we're looking at things now and saying, what about things like inherited breast cancer mutations, right? Which they don't guarantee you're going to get breast cancer, but enhances the chance that you might. Can we just undo those? And what about training immune cells to attack cancer? Can we do genome edits to those? Uh, muscular dystrophy, things like that. We're doing those. There are actually clinical trials now that have begun using genome editing. But we only do them on adults, and we only do them to cells that can't be passed on. So no sperm and eggs yet, okay? So we're trying to fix people in the tissues that have those problems. But 
people would like to do this on embryos. They would like to think more about what does it mean to change inheritance? And what we need to think about here is could it lead to issues of eugenics? Because even though we don't know, and I promise you it's not gonna be one gene, but if we find a combination of genes that says, wow, I could enhance your intelligence a whole lot. I could make you a super athlete or super artistic. Would you be willing to pay for that if you're somebody who wants to have kids? And how much is reasonable? Sure, I'll do it, a million bucks. Eh, I'll give you a discount, $100,000, right? How many people can afford that? Should everybody have access to it? The military is very interested in how this could affect soldiers. Can we make people more uber-soldier-like, strong, aggressive, smart, strategic, right? So, do we have laws already? What's going on with that? Well, mostly it's scientists self-regulating each other, which is a good thing. We all got excited, and then the National Academy of Sciences got together, and they talked for a long time, and they said, maybe we should just pump the brakes a little bit here, because we're starting to roll downhill, and maybe we should think about this more. And so the scientific community has done a really good job of saying, let's talk about the ethics behind this. Right now, you can't do human genome editing in embryos. But like I said, we've been trying to do it with curing diseases and things like that in adults. You can create human embryos for research, but you have to do it with private funding, okay? And I want you to kind of think about that. What are the positive and negatives to that, all right? And then for now, you can do genome editing, like I said, in the non-reproductive cells, okay, in, in non-embryos. So one of the things, though, and you might have seen this in the opening slide as it kind of flew by, is there's really a lack of laws. And one of the issues here is that our Congress tends to be really reactive to things. Things happen and we say, we should make a law. And then they make a sweeping law that can be really restrictive from a scientific perspective. And so the, one of the questions is, how can we be more proactive? So when it comes to the ethical component, and I realize that we can't hit every niche here, right? There's so much more to talk about, and I wish we had time. One of the things we need to think about is, it's not perfect yet. We have a really hard time with CRISPR not only getting it to work. When it works, it's cool. But, but it, it's actually kind of tough to get it to work sometimes. And part of the thing is too, we have three billion units. If you just want to change this, how do we sort of survey the rest of those three billion units to make sure something else didn't accidentally happen that we didn't want to happen? Could that? Um, we have to think about things like, if we want to do this to embryos and bring children into the world that have been modified, what is their voice, right? It sounds really weird, but it's kind of, uh, if you guys are familiar with X-Men, the original X-Men, where there are these mutants, right? And there are these people in the government that want a database of who's a mutant and who's not. And people are talking about that now with this. If you have a modification, bless you, if you have a modification that makes you more athletic, can you, can you compete in the Olympics? Should we know that you've been modified so that we can say, well, that's really not fair? If we can cure disease, what about those enhancements? Um, mostly, how do we regulate this? How do we talk about it as a global community? Because China and Japan and Sweden and England are already moving beyond this, and they're already pushing the envelope. So we can make laws here, but what does that mean globally? And how do we, how do we interact with the global community because different cultures and different values come into play? Accessibility, I kind of mentioned price, right? Does the government have an obligation to step in if we can cure a disease this way? And say, okay, we just gotta pay for it. Anybody who has this, we've got to be able to cure them. Or is it no, you either have the money or you don't. And then finally, the really important thing is as a community, how do we talk about this, especially from a faith perspective? 
Think about what Dale and Kathy presented. Where were the Christians in that? Where was that conversation? How many people were involved in those things that claimed to be Christians? And were they doing what we would consider Christian things? And going forward with this kind of technology, how do we as Christians engage with this? I challenge you to comb the Bible for any phrase that's genome editing related. <laughs> Jesus didn't say a whole lot about that. So how do we interpret that? It's tough and they're tough, challenging decisions. But what we really want people to engage with is knowing that this is coming fast, okay? The media makes it sound like everything's gonna be cured by next week and I, I just want you to know that just ain't true, all right? It's probably gonna take longer than we think, but it is promising and it is exciting. But we have to think about it and how are we going to be proactive in the conversation. And so we'd love to engage you in this conversation. We'd love you to go back to your communities, engage those people in these conversations and talk to congressional representatives because they're the ones that are gonna write the laws and they should know how you feel and you should know how they feel. Because if we don't engage that, then things will just happen to us instead of by us. So I'm just going to leave you with this thought. E.O. Wilson was a naturalist at Harvard. And he's, he wrote a lot about uh, what could happen in the future. And it's a really interesting thing that he says here. If there is danger in the human trajectory, it is not so much in the survival of our own species as in the fulfillment of the ultimate irony of organic evolution that in the instant of achieving self-understanding through the mind of man, life has doomed its most beautiful creations. I want to be clear here. I'm actually very optimistic about these types of technologies. But this kind of a warning is very imperative in the way that we need to think about the consequences of our actions, positive and negative and what risks are we willing to take and what obligations are we willing to take on so I'll end with that thank you for your time we'd love to open this up to a little Q&A discussion kind of a thing we'd love to hear your thoughts if you have uh, questions about the history Carrie Buck the technology where we're going yes That's a great question, right? I mean, it's that the sci-fi of 20 years ago is at our doorstep, right, in some ways. And that's a little a weird and kind of uncomfortable. Um, all those commercials you see on TV right now, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, right? Send in some money, they give you a kit, they sequence some stuff and give you a bunch of information. That's a good question. Who owns that? The company owns that. And they can say, we're not gonna give this up. But you remember what happened last year when they caught uh, a Serial murderer because of a connection through one of those companies, right? So it's important to think about who owns your information. And that gets back at the genome editing, right? If you've been modified, are you obligated to report that? Who knows it? Should it matter? But yes, the simple answer is the companies own their information. Um, well, they can't make you do things without your consent, but if you consent to give them samples... Yeah, if, if they create a person, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. I would imagine that we would quickly pass laws that would say, you can't do that. But if they could make some argument saying, we're the parents, you can't take our kid away. Right? Oh, sorry. So you mentioned um, the opportunity, say, like to cure muscular dystrophy in a mice in a mouse. Um, are there fingerprints left on that uh, genetic treatment afterwards? It's like, oh, yes, this is what happened in the course of that treatment. I'm sorry, I'm trying, when you say fingerprints left on... So, for instance, uh, you know, today everybody in here hasn't been, hasn't had the gene, genomes uh, messed with. Uh -huh. 
but 20 years from now, will that still be true, and could I know that? Oh, right, so are you saying like, are there physical aspects Right. That you could tell somebody who's been modified, or from, you know, microscopically. I mean, can you yeah, test at the for DNA how, level? The, the, you know, this person had muscular dystrophy. You know, I didn't know them when they did that, but now, you know, 20 years in the future, I've tested them. Oh, you've been tinkered with. Right. That's a great question. Do we leave traces of tinkering? And in theory, CRISPR shouldn't, right? But there are other things that happen to your DNA that uh, their modifications, things called methylation and stuff like this, that we see their imprinting aspects that happen. And you could look at those sorts of things and see, are they faithfully replicated once you do this editing, if it's required, or have they been erased? And can those patterns tell if someone's been modified or not? That's a, that's a good question to think about. Well, this question is kind of for Dale Soden. Um, yes. So you were talking about Alexander Graham Bell and his um, fight for just stopping deaf. Wasn't his wife deaf, though, and his mother deaf? So did he not like deaf people? Like, I'm a little confused about that. Well, I think he was so marry deaf people. Thank you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important point when we think about this, where we make moral judgments about, well, of course, nobody would want to be like that, right? And do, do you see the judgment call in that sort of thing? So uh, if, you know, I talk with my students about this and say, uh, go ask a person with Down syndrome whether they think they're broken. I mean, think about that. Yeah, so there's lots of T-cell therapies that are going on that are pretty exciting. And essentially that does get at training. They take your own cells out and, and try to just, if I can generalize, train them to go back and attack cancer. One of the ways is looking at doing this through genome editing. Can we alter the genome of those cells to be more aggressive? Because one of the things you have to do is make sure you don't start recognizing your normal cells, but only recognize tumor cells. Oh, yeah, so I mean, that's, it's a, right now they're only, uh, my understanding is that the clinical trials with genome editing are in adults because one of the issues that this gets at is consent. Can you get a child to truly understand what they're about to go through? And when you're under a certain age, your parents are in charge. But people are trying to argue, like, but when we get to these kinds of things, when you're altering permanently who this person is in some ways, can parents give consent about that? Or should the child be of age where they can say, I get it, I get the risk, I understand what you're about to do? So that's, right now, it's only at the adult level because some of the, if you remember 15 years ago or so, they tried some gene therapy that went horribly wrong. And one of those people was really young and they were like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing that. Oh, right. Uh, this goes until 3.30 today, is it? <laughs> yeah, one more. Can, can you explain CRISPR? How does it work? I right. mean, to me, that's, that's the mystery. How, how, how does this work? I, I, this is actually an amazing story, and I, I would really recommend you go read about it more. Uh, this essentially came out, they've known about this for a really long time in bacteria. It's kind of a really primitive immune kind of a thing from bacteria. And they discovered that it would alter the DNA. And so um, Jennifer Doudna and, I don't know if I'm gonna say the name right, but Michelle Charpentier, um, they, they had these ideas that what if we could do this in different systems? Because it's kind of a genome editing sort of a thing. Could we intentionally use these enzymes that essentially read a chunk of DNA and will go in and find a matching chunk and then alter the sequence a little bit. And what you essentially can do is give it these little chunks that you've changed and say, go find the chunk that kind of matches this and change it to what I gave you. So you're essentially giving it a page of a book with altered text on it and saying, now go change the book itself and alter the text on that page only. 
And what they found is that those enzymes don't care what kind of cells they're in. And so far, pretty much every organism that they've tried, it works in. And that's what's made this so huge. So you can do it in mice, and you can do it in worms, and you can do it in monkeys and humans, and it changes little, you can make little changes or big changes. And it's pretty amazing that what it does is it actually follows the directions that you give it, because all it knows how to do is cut and paste. So if you just tell it different things to cut and paste, it just does it. And it just knows DNA, so it doesn't care where that DNA is from. So you send it into cells, have it do its thing, and boom, there you go. The problem is, it's not perfect. But you can imagine it's transformative. And some of these people started out together working, because you can imagine the billions of dollars involved, right? And so they all started working together, and now suddenly there are patent fights involved. And um, you know, everybody wants their share. Yeah, that, that's a great question, right? Uh, so, so maybe I shouldn't try and answer that. Uh, do you want to comment on that real quick? And then we'll let everybody go. Yeah, thank you. That's a, those are great points, and I really appreciate all those. I just want to leave you with this, this last thing that's kind of an important thing to think about as a Christian community. When IVF first came out, in vitro fertilization first came out in the mid-70s, the Christian community was essentially horrified that we would attempt those sorts of things, uh, sort of a playing God sort of a thing, right? Studies now show, and it's not just among Christians, but among other religious communities, um, you essentially can't tell the difference percentage-wise of those populations who uses IVF and who doesn't. So things change. People's attitudes shift over time. So it's really important to think about these things um, now and be proactive about it instead of reactive later. Thank you so much for your time today, everyone. We're happy to hang out.